Welcome to the Grace Long Beach Podcast, a series of sermons from our weekly Sunday gathering. For more information on our church community, values, and service times, please visit www.gracelb.org. Thanks for listening. Today's reading is a selection of verses from 1 Peter 1 and 2. Dear friends, since you are immigrants and strangers in the world, I urge that you avoid worldly desires that wage war against your lives. Live honorably among the unbelievers. Today they defame you as if you were doing evil. But in the day when God visits to judge, they will glorify him because they have observed your honorable deeds. For the sake of the Lord, submit to every human institution. Do this whether it means submitting to the emperor as supreme ruler or to governors as those sent by the emperor. Honor everyone. Love the family of believers. Have respectful fear of God. Honor the emperor. Household slaves, submit by accepting the authority of your masters with all respect. Do this not only to good and kind masters, but also to those who are harsh. Now, it is commendable if, because of one's understanding of God, someone should endure pain through suffering unjustly. But what praise comes from enduring patiently when you have sinned and are beaten for it? But if you endure steadfastly when you've done good and suffer for it, this is commendable before God. You were called to this kind of endurance because Christ suffered on your behalf. He left you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. He committed no sin, nor did he ever speak in ways meant to deceive. When he was insulted, he did not reply with insults. When he suffered, he did not threaten revenge. Instead, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He carried in his own body on the cross the sins we committed. He did this so that we might live in righteousness, having nothing to do with sin. By his wounds, you were healed. Though you were like straying sheep, you have now returned to the shepherd and guardian of your lives. Wives, likewise, submit to your own husbands. Do this so that even if some of them refuse to believe the word, they may be won without a word by their wives' way of life. After all, they will have observed the reverent and holy manner of your lives. Don't try to make yourself beautiful on the outside with stylish hair or by wearing gold jewelry or fine clothes. Instead, make yourselves beautiful on the inside, in your hearts, with the enduring quality of a gentle, peaceful spirit. This type of beauty is very precious in God's eyes. For it was in this way that holy women... who trusted in God, used to make themselves beautiful, accepting the authority of their own husbands. For example, Sarah accepted Abraham's authority when she called him master. You have become her children when you do good and don't respond to threats with fear. Finally, all of you, be of one mind, sympathetic, Lovers of your fellow believers, compassionate and modest in your opinion of yourselves. Don't pay back evil for evil or insult for insult. Instead, give blessings in return. 
you were called to do this so that you might inherit a blessing. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Kids, you're dismissed to King's Quest as the rest of us are seated. Thank you, Mackenzie, for that beautiful, passionate reading. What a gift it is to be part of this community. May I speak in the name of the living God. What role does the church play in the world? How is the church supposed to live in society? Peter's words to us tell us everything we need to know about the role the church plays in the world. What kind of lifestyle, what, what is good conduct for us in, in society? Now, at first, true, Peter's words might represent everything that you find unsettling or troublesome about the Bible and perhaps Christianity itself. When Peter tells slaves to submit to harsh masters and wives to submit to husbands, it seems to side with oppression. When it tells you, do good, don't do evil, don't lie, you wonder, why do I need to read that in the Bible? Isn't that clear? And Peter's words about Christ in chapter 3 move quickly from the sublime, the righteous one gives his life for the unrighteous, to the bizarre. He went and preached to the spirits in prison. You think, what? What spirits in prison? And then to the unrealistic. When caused to suffer, he did not threaten. At first, this passage might seem outdated, unneeded, and bizarre. But when we look closer together at Peter's words, we discover a beautiful, unsettling vision for the way our lives together in the world are supposed to look. I want to focus on how Peter casts the church in three roles in the world and then gives us three dimensions of who Christ is for us. Three roles the church plays in the world, three dimensions of Christ's suffering for us. Uh, let's look at the text together. Uh, open your Bible, if you would, to 1 Peter 2.11. Um, does somebody, if anybody's using the blue Bible, can you call out a page number when you get there? And 1014 in the Blue Bible. Thank you. 1 Peter 2.11. Over the last two weeks, Daniel has shown us how Peter proclaims to his audience uh, who we are, that we have a, a, a sure identity, that we have security in our identity because of what Christ has done. Peter tells us we're elect exiles who count suffering as joy, holy people with a spotted past, a house for the spirit, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. To be named in all these ways feels almost overwhelming. It means there really is room for us in God's story. It means that no matter what, we belong to God. But in 2.11, the word beloved marks a new section in Peter's letter with a new focus. Peter moves from speaking about our identity to speaking about our ethics, from speaking about who we are, 
to speaking about how we are to live in the world. The first role of three, the first role of the church in the world that Peter gives us is this. Look at verse 11. Uh, We are sojourners and exiles, which is another way of saying strangers, foreigners, immigrants, refugees. Peter tells us that the church is supposed to live as a perpetual foreigner in society, to be a stranger all the time. More than anything else, a stranger, foreigner, refugee is marked by difference, a different way of speaking, a different kind of family, a different manner of eating. Difference from dominant culture means that strangers and foreigners face perpetual misunderstanding, communal fragility, a sense of not belonging, a minority position on how to live as human beings. It also means that you lack protections that citizens of a nation have. It means political vulnerability, measure of powerlessness. This is all an image for the church. You can hear this in Peter's own words, verses 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. In verse 11, the word soul shows up, and it's always a really mysterious word. Um, Here, soul seems to mean life, life in its fullest sense, as opposed to some immaterial part of each one of us. Strangers and exiles do not give in to passions and desires that war against life. The church is a stranger in the world, or it should be, because it holds on to life in its fullest sense. It surrenders every desire and action that wars against that life. And that makes the church different. Later in this passage, if you want to look at chapter 4, verses 3 to 4, It's a very long passage. It's almost half of Peter's letter. Peter says that the time that has passed suffices for doing what Gentiles want to do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they're surprised when you do not join them in this same flood of debauchery and they malign you, they insult you, they slander you. Peter wants us to resist everything that doesn't yield the mystery and the beauty of living. That's one thing. The other thing to notice about how Peter speaks about the church as a stranger is this. Uh, Back to chapter 2, verse 12. The good conduct and the lifestyle of the church will be so misunderstood by the dominant culture that the church will be insulted, maligned, spoken against as evildoers. This was actually the situation of the early church in the Greco-Roman world. If you can believe it, Christians, people like us in this room, were regarded as atheists. We didn't worship the Roman gods. Uh, We were also regarded as traitors to the state because we didn't worship the Roman emperor. Sometimes we feel like 
if something is true, the majority of people will probably believe it. And so maybe, you know, if a lot of people believe something, it can help us find the truth or at least be confident that what we believe is true. But Peter tells us that the truth is found in Christ. And he's reminded us that Christ was rejected by the world, but chosen by God. Uh, Or as Kierkegaard reminds us, the crowd is untruth. The crowd spit on Christ. Christ comes to us as a stranger, as one different. Um, And this means that the crowd of opinion that we find all around us in news media and social media, or even in some of the people, some of the people in your life, that the crowd can't determine for Christians what is good and evil. It really is possible to be misunderstood. The church, as a stranger, finds its identity and truth in the stranger it meets in Christ. The church is a stranger in the world, different because it holds on to life, misunderstood because it's different. That's the first one. Uh, in, the, in the next section of Peter, which goes from chapter 2, verse 13, to chapter 3, verse 7, Peter gives us two more images of the role of the church in society, the church as a slave and the church as a wife. This is, I, I think, one of the more misunderstood texts in First Peter, because in it, it really does seem like Peter supports slavery in its cruelest form and endorses the lowly position of women in Roman society. Um, And I think we misunderstand this passage because uh, we don't see that Peter is actually using a common form of ancient Roman moral discourse called household codes. Um, The household in the Roman world was the, the ordered set of relationships between masters and slaves, between husbands and wives, between fathers and children. Um, If you want to pull up the next slide, you can maybe sort of read that. Uh, On this slide, you um, see part of a household code in the philosopher Aristotle. And you see he addresses masters, fathers, and husbands in a household. Um, Roman household codes would only address the men who ruled because only free men were understood to have dignity and full moral agency. Masters ruled slaves, husbands ruled wives, fathers ruled children. Um, If you want to pull up the next slide, we see what Aristotle says. And apologies to the three philosophers in the room, because I'm throwing Aristotle under the bus here. Um, But sorry, not sorry. Aristotle says, almost all things rule and are ruled according to nature. For a slave has no deliberative faculty at all. The woman has, but it's without authority. And the child has, but it is immature. Um, Men, free men, were the only ones who had dignity and moral agency for Rome. That's Rome. Now, the New Testament adopts the form of household codes in order to talk about how the church lives together as God's household but it changes the content of the codes. The New Testament humanizes these codes. It subverts everything in them that wars against life. Um, So if you want to go to the next slide, um, here's a household code in Ephesians 5. And what you see immediately, when I put it like this, is that all people in the household are addressed and given dignity and responsibility and told to be honored, including slaves, women, and children. 
This kind of regard the New Testament shows for all human beings is the beginning of the end for the unquestioned superiority of free men over everyone else in ancient Rome. Now, First Peter, moving on, uh, is, is very unusual in how it talk, uses the household code because it basically only addresses slaves and wives. And there's one short sentence about husbands, but if you look at the text, it's paragraph on slaves, paragraph on wives, and then husbands. <laughs> so how do you explain uh, how unusual this is? Well, Peter has addressed the church already as strangers and foreigners, as exiles and refugees, as people living from the margin of society. And this whole passage from uh, 1 Peter 2.11 to 4.11 is framed in terms of how the church lives in broader society, good conduct among the Gentiles. Uh, In effect, what Peter is saying, I think, is this. If you want to know what it's like for the church to live faithfully in society... Look to the example of Christian slaves suffering under cruel masters. Look to the example of Christian wives married to pagan husbands. They are your models. They show you something of what Christ is for all of us and what all of us are to be to the world. That's what I think Peter is doing. Um, And that's astonishing. uh, Because... Slaves and wives were really not considered much in the Roman world, and here Peter not only gives them honor and dignity and asks that they be honored and dignified, he even says they're a living example of faithfulness for the whole church. Um, in, in their own Roman context, you can begin to see how amazing that is, right? So, um, that's why in... Uh, Yeah, there it is. Okay. In chapter 2, verse 16, Peter addresses the whole church as God's slaves. And why in chapter 3, verses 13 and 16, Peter's instructions to wives are repeated and given to everyone. One example of that is do not fear. So this is the key thing to understand. Peter's instructions to slaves and to wives are instructions to the whole church about how to live in the world. When Peter addresses slaves and wives, he addresses all of us. With that said, Peter's second image for the role of the church in in society is is the church as a slave. Uh, The slave held no political power, had no recourse to law. In Roman society, it was considered impolite for a master to kill a slave, but it wasn't illegal. In particular, Peter says that when the church is living faithfully, it's like a slave living faithfully to Christ under an unjust master. Look at verse 18 of chapter 2. Slaves, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Peter instructs slaves to be subject or to submit, and the word he uses there means something like live responsibly where you are placed. In that sense, the opposite of submission is not disobedience, but withdrawal. Live responsibly where you are placed. The church as a slave is not supposed to withdraw, even from an unjust, cruel society. We are to live in response to God in that society, even when doing good works provokes misunderstanding and suffering. Um, Peter says that we are to live as free people because we are people who are slaves of God. 
almost a paradox. Um, Our freedom is given to us by God alone, not by state, not by master. And our freedom is not the ability to do what we want to do when we want to do it. Freedom is the ability to live in loving service toward God and toward our neighbors in a world where such service might bring suffering on us. Uh, Listen to Peter's words here. Um, And I think for some of you, given what situation you're in, these words from Peter might be words of God for you now. 2.20 When you do good and suffer for it, and you endure, it is a gracious thing in God's sight. 3.13-14 Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. 3.17 It is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Beautiful, painful, unsettling. This is what it means for the church to be a slave. Freed by God to do good works toward others, even to the point of suffering. Peter's third image for the role of the church in the world is the church as a wife. In particular, a a wife faithful to Christ who's married to a husband who does not believe. Peter, uh, if you look at 3.1, Peter addresses wives who have husbands who do not obey the word, um, and he wants them to live in such a way that their husbands may be one without a word by the conduct of their lives. We've already seen that women in the Roman world were a little less than human, perceived as such, treated as such. Um, and that put Christian women married to pagan men in a particularly precarious situation. Conventional wisdom said that women were to worship the same God as their husbands. Um, Christian women would not worship the same gods as their pagan husbands. So what does Peter say to these women? 3, six. He tells them to do good, to fear nothing that is frightening, to let the beauty of the inner life win over the husband who does not believe. Um, And later he instructs the whole church to have no fear of them, nor be troubled. That is, not to fear those who can do you harm. Peter knows that humans tend to worship what they fear and would have us fear God alone, God our Savior and our Judge. Be careful who you give your fear to. Peter points to the example of Israel's matriarch Sarah, as a faithful wife with a disobedient husband, Abraham. Uh, That's really surprising, given how revered Abraham was and is. Um, But Abraham, you will recall, did lie to Pharaoh about Sarah being his sister and not his wife because he was afraid of Pharaoh. And in that situation, Sarah entrusted herself to the Lord, lived well, and did not fear. And she became all of our mother. The church as a wife is like that. The church finds itself in a precarious, fearful situation in the world, but is still supposed to live well, fear nothing, 
attend to the inner beauty of our life together, and so win over the world without a word. Um, If that doesn't sound like a church you're familiar with, uh, I would understand that. Read about the church in Pakistan, or Egypt, or China, or El Salvador, and you'll see a church that's doing exactly that. The second century Christian, Justin Martyr, said that what impressed Roman pagans the most about Christians was not that their lives were attractive. Um, It's not that the pagans looked at the church and said, oh, what do you have? We want that. Uh, Justin Martyr says it's, it's the Christians' courage, their fearlessness, their endurance in doing good, even when it meant they would suffer and die for that good. Listen to what he said. These words are amazing. It's evident that no one can terrify or subdue us. For throughout all the world, we have believed in Jesus. It is clear that, although beheaded, crucified, thrown to wild beasts, fire, and all other kinds of torture, we do not give up our confession. But the more such things happen, the more do other persons and larger numbers become faithful believers and worshipers of God through the name of Jesus. Amazing. Power. Um, Beautiful. So Peter has given us three images for the role the church plays in the world. The church is cast as stranger, as slave, and as wife. As a stranger, the church is different and misunderstood because it holds on to life. As a slave, the church is to do good to the point of suffering for it, knowing that such a life can please God. And as a wife, the church is to have such a beauty of inner life and such fearless courage that it wins over the world. What does all of this mean for our own bewilderment about how the church lives in society, about how we are to conduct ourselves in the world or in public? It seems to me like all the meanness, hurt, and horror that comes from the church's involvement in the world's politics comes from the church playing the role of the world and not the role of the church. In 1 Peter, the world plays the role of cruel master, unfaithful husband, upright pagan citizen. And the world has its own kind of power and glory and freedom, glorious national monuments, powerful national stories, military might, promises of freedom and independence and peace and prosperity. But my dear friends, the role of the church in the world is to be the church. It's not to be a better version of the world. It's not to make the world a worse version of the church. The church is not supposed to be the master, wielding the world's political power to accomplish its goals effectively. The church is not supposed to be husband, accommodating itself to the world's desires and assimilating into it. The church is not supposed to be citizen, comfortably at home in the world's political order, yielding allegiance to nations and states in return for their promises. Um, That is, yielding unyielding allegiance. Um, When the church has become these things, there's been real horrors, and history attests to that. It's not what God has made us to be in the world. God have mercy on us. The role of the church in the world is to be the church. We're to be a strange, faithful people collected by Christ, whose language and way of life is a window into the very heart of God. P. 
Peter tells us that the church is a holy nation, which is to say the church is a politics. With Christ as our Lord, our lives together should be marked by wholeness and holiness, self-giving love, endurance in doing good, fearlessness in the face of suffering, hopefulness in anticipation of God's salvation. The church, which Peter calls a holy nation, should reveal to every nation what is possible for human life. That is what the church is about, being a strange people faithful to Christ our Lord. This is the political reality we are to work toward with all the strength that God supplies, to be a people that mirrors the very holiness and life of God. The role of the church in the world is to be the church, a stranger, a slave, his wife, living differently because we hold on to life, enduring and doing good, even in the face of suffering, adorning our life together with beauty and without fear. Now, this isn't something each one of us can do on his own or on her own. We really need each other to live the quality of life that God desires for us. And this is a reality that we are living into at this church. When we share of ourselves out of not only our richness, but also our poverty, not only our strength, but also our weakness, not only our comfort, but also our discomfort, it happens when we entrust to each other our stories and our longings. It happens when we welcome strangers and receive the blessing that God has for us through them. It happens when we return kindness for meanness, which is another way of saying forgiveness. One way this reality is evident to me in this community is how many people have embraced and welcomed children who have been in vulnerable situations into their homes or helped those who have. If maybe for a season, or maybe forever. And still, there's more beautiful reality, more life for us to press into together. We have all received gifts from God. We need to use those gifts to love, to welcome, to forgive, and to serve each other. We need to press into being all that God wants us to be. Does that sound like something you're interested in? Maybe, some of you. There's a quorum, at least. Now, in the, in the middle of, of showing the church what it is to be in the world, Peter presents three dimensions of who Christ is and what Christ has done for us, because Peter knows the church cannot be the church without Jesus Christ. And that is why Peter draws our eyes to Christ. Christ was what we are supposed to be in the world. The church cannot be the church without Jesus Christ. Christ stands at the center of our identity, the center of how we speak with each other, the center of how we live with each other. And Peter gives us three dimensions of who Christ is for us. First, Jesus Christ and his suffering and his glory is exemplary, an example to us. He shows us what we are to be. Sometimes Christians fixate on salvation as a past event, in which case we're saved from sin, but we aren't saved for anything. Peter reminds us that God saves us for something. And that something is the pattern and path that Jesus has given us to follow. Look at chapter 2, verse 21. 
Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Verse 23, here's the pattern. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. Revile is a weird word. When he was insulted. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. The pattern of Christ's life is also the pattern of our lives. Suffering first and glory to follow. Jesus comes to us as a stranger and a slave. Jesus suffered in doing good and was glorified in the resurrection. If you are suffering for doing good now, know that God looks tenderly on you with kindness and grace. Know that because you are participating in Christ's suffering now, you will also participate in his glory. If you're wondering where God's hand is in the painful circumstances you're in, when all your years of loving service have brought unbearable pain upon you, look in the mirror and see the hand of God. You have become the pierced hand of Christ because you have followed in his footsteps. Second, the suffering and glory of Jesus is effective. It works. It brings into being new possibility for human life, a centuries-long quiet revolution away from meanness, cruelty, and selfishness that wars against life into a new way of being, finished with sin, willing to endure suffering to do good for the Lord. But Jesus' suffering and glory is unique in that way. It's the beginning of all of it. It's what makes it work. As Peter says in chapter 3, verse 18, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous one for the unrighteous many, so that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Christ suffered once for sins. Christ suffered for sins once, and that was enough to wash away all the dirt and stains of all the sins we've done all our lives. Christ suffered as the righteous one, a, a person so good and kind that any suffering he went through was not only undeserved, but horrific, a human atrocity. But somehow, and in that somehow is a great mystery, in his suffering, he takes our place. He makes things right with us and carries us with him through the cross all the way into the presence of God. And there he introduces us to God as friends, as brothers, as sisters. Third, the suffering and glory of Jesus is redemptive. It means salvation for us, for us individuals, for us as a church. Peter says in chapter 2, verse 24, it's by the wounds of Jesus that you are healed, that he bore in his body our sins on the tree. In the cross and resurrection, your redemption is complete, whole, finished. After the cross of Christ, there is no work left for you to do for your salvation, no sin of yours left to bear, nothing that is past to haunt your future, no more basis for condemnation, 
No more ground for shame. You have died to sin. You have been made alive to righteousness, made fully alive, delivered into God's household, given joy even in the midst of suffering, given hope that is stronger than death. And all this also means redemption for the church, a whole community of people saved through baptism. God delivered eight people through the flood in the time of Noah, and now the church is delivered from a world of violence and unredeemable sorrow through the water of baptism, waters that mark all of us with the suffering and glory of Jesus. If the church has often stood in need of redemption itself, baptism is God's promise that all finally will be redeemed. The whole past, present, and future of God's people will be redeemed, made whole and holy, made righteous and just, all shot through with suffering and finally with glory like Jesus in the transfiguration. The church in the world is to be a stranger, a slave, and a wife, because that's the way it was with Jesus, and that's the way it is with you. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belongs glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Thanks be to God.